Kelly Reichardt's new film, First Cow, is getting rave reviews. Is it actually a mistress piece? Here's Mia Bays from Bird's Eye View. Other than the kind of the real frontiersmen who are the kind of self-appointed colonels, everyone else, she's portraying different aspects of masculinity. You always see them sweeping. They're sweeping or, or beating the carpets or doing something that's sort of quote-unquote feminine, and I kind of love that. It feels like she's very, very aware of busting cinematic masculinity, especially in these kind of frontier stories. I also chat to Orla Smith and Christelle Olukoy about Kelly Reichardt and the best new films on the big screen in this episode in partnership with Bird's Eye View. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. I'm going to get that gun of mine, and I'm going to change you from a rooster to a hen with one shot. Some people call me a freak. I hate that word. I don't believe in it. Better yet, I don't believe in labels. You know, I think you're the only girl in the world that can stand on a stage with a spotlight in her eye and still see a diamond inside a man's pocket. Because I'm up at five every morning working my ass off. Does someone want to just tell me to my face you're never going to give me the scores I deserve? So I'm sitting in the Picture House Central in my favourite little corner spot in the members bar overlooking Piccadilly and it is so nice to be back in a cinema and it's so nice to have someone in the room with me and that person is Mia Bays. Welcome Mia. Hello Anna, it's so lovely to be here. Oh, it's great to have you back on Girls on Film and in person. And down the line we're also joined by Orla Smith. Hello Orla. Hello. How are you? Uh, I'm doing great. I'm really excited to talk about Kelly Reichardt after writing a book on her a whole year ago and having a bit of a break from discussion of her. Well, I remember we mentioned the book on Girls on Film and we were like, oh, I cannot wait to see First Cow. So it is so exciting to finally be discussing this film. Um, Mia and I have seen it before, but we've just been to see it again on the big screen and I don't know I was feeling I'm feeling pretty emotional Mia how are you feeling yeah it's really interesting the big screen and what it does to make you kind of feel like held in this kind of quite precious space and you just got so much more space for emotion yeah play differently to me it is interesting and of course her films have so much rich detail in them that I think that really works in the big screen visually, but also on a second viewing. Um, Ola, how many times have you seen First Cow? I think I've seen it about three or four times as I was preparing for the book, which is about all of Kelly Reichardt's films, but also has specifically a case study on that film. So it was a lot in depth and there's so many layers to the film that it really like took several viewings to really understand it fully but I've never seen it in a cinema and that's something I really hope to do because it is pretty gorgeous. It was yeah I'm, I'm feeling quite bowled over by how amazing it was and I do actually think it's what what Mia would call a mistress piece would you agree Mia? I do it's my favorite of hers I think it's about so much it's so deep it really is. Well I think Orla seeing as you've written the book why don't you for the listeners explain a little bit about Kelly Reichardt, but also specifically First Cow and the setup. So anyone coming new to this, to give them a flavour. Kelly Reichardt is, I mean, she's one of my favourite filmmakers, probably my favourite filmmaker working today. And I think this is her seventh feature film. Dating back to 1994, she made River of Grass, which was her first film. Then there was 12 years before we got another film from her uh, with Old Joy and all of her films are sort of, save for River of Grass, are set in 
the American Midwest slash Pacific Northwest, mainly in Oregon, they deal with, either directly or indirectly, they deal with mythologies of the American West. They deal with capitalism, with disenfranchised people. And I think First Cow is possibly the film of hers to deal most explicitly with all of those things. It feels a bit like a culmination of her work. It's set in the 1820s in Oregon, and it follows a fur trapper, a cook called Cookie, and a Chinese immigrant businessman called King Lu, who become friends in a small town during like early capitalism, and they start a biscuit baking business by stealing milk. And it's all very wholesome until it's not when chief the chief factor played by Toby Jones, who is kind of presiding over this town and enforcing English law and presiding over the profits of the town, who owns the cow, decides, realizes what they're doing and decides that he's not having it. A royal cow. And yet she barely produces a thing. Some people can't imagine being stolen from. Let's hope he's one of those. We got a window here, Cookie. History isn't here yet. It's coming, but maybe this time we can take it on our own terms. So the whole thing sort of it explores capitalism, as I said, which has been explored throughout her work and how disenfranchised people are affected by capitalism. But by going back to early capitalism, the one percent becomes this tangible figure of the chief factor. Um, and it's almost like a microcosm of everything that she's exploring. And it's just so rich in all the layers. You have that larger layer that I'm talking about, but then you also have the very sweet, lovely friendship of Cookie and King Lou, which is the heart of the film. It really is a gorgeous film about friendship, isn't it? And I found it so refreshing that this is a, you could almost call it a Western, so perhaps it's a genre where we're typically used to seeing guys acting all tough and stereotypically masculine. And I love the way this film explores a tender friendship between two men, which, unlike Brokeback Mountain, doesn't go into sexual territory, it's platonic. But it really is just about two men trying to get along in the world to quite gentle contrasting but lovely men. Mia, would you like to speak to that a bit? Yeah, I'm kind of not sure it's platonic, but I just love ah. that she doesn't show that bit. Really? Oh, yeah, okay. I've, it feels much more, yeah, like there's something unsaid or, or rather what she doesn't show, but that there's something very tender about their relationship that feels to me like there's more, that they love each other, I think. But do you think it's consummated? I'm curious. Yeah, I do, actually. Orla, do you think so? I don't know if it matters. Um, yeah, I mean, the thing is, Kelly Rycutt's films overall are quite, like, asexual. Like, there, is, there isn't a sex scene in any of her films. I just don't think that that's necessarily what she's interested in portraying in relationships. You can have a relationship of love that is romantic love, and I don't think that she would necessarily feel the need to show a sex scene. So I think that you can absolutely make that argument that that's what she's trying to show with them. I mean, they absolutely do love each other. So you could absolutely make that interpretation or possibly that it would be consummated if they were able to continue it longer than they do. 
Interesting. But so, so Mia, tell me more about the friendship and the masculinity, regardless of whether we think they had sex or not. Well, it's just so beautiful how Cookie, right at the beginning, the very first time you see that character crouching in the woods, he a, a lizard is in front of him on its back and he tips it over and he writes it and it, you just immediately know what kind of man he is. And that's such an amazing cinema and such brilliant character set up. And then what I love is that other than the kind of the real frontiersmen who are the kind of, you know, self-appointed colonels, the Toby Jones character and the other soldier, everyone else, she's portraying different aspects of masculinity. You always see them sweeping. They're sweeping or, or beating the carpets or doing something that's sort of quote-unquote feminine. And I kind of love that. It feels like she's very, very aware of busting cinematic masculinity especially in these kind of frontier stories definitely Orla how do you think that that fits into her wider work do you think this explores that more than any of her other pictures yeah I mean she's a filmmaker who's always incredibly aware of dynamics of masculinity and femininity and I think initially when this film was announced there were a lot of like speculation about whether this would be a companion piece to her second film Old Joy which is also about a friendship between two men in Oregon although that friendship is a lot more sort of fraught with like unspoken social like violence there's like violence to their relationship even though it's not physical violence whereas here there's a lot of tenderness I was here two summers ago totally private no one around and most of all it has this otherworldly peacefulness about it. Uh, you can really think. It's like climbing a mountain. Look around, you see trees and rocks and bushes pressing around you, and then you get above the tree line, you see everything you just went through, and it all like comes together. You know, you see that it has a shape after all. I'm just being crazy. I know. Don't pay any attention to me, okay? We're fine. Uh, but I think overall her films are very interested in looking at the people who are often in the background of like classic westerns say but are never the central focus and putting them in focus. So when I spoke with her co-writer John Raymond who wrote the book that First Cow is based on he said that Cookie is a character who is absolutely present in many westerns like he's the cook on the wagon train in the background who isn't as tough as the men that we're following in those films. And the intention was always to bring that figure to the forefront. And she does that in Meek's Cutoff as well with women, which is another period piece set in the American West. She takes the women who are doing the washing in the background of classic Westerns and she puts them in the foreground. We're in their perspective. So we're trying to listen into the men who are making the plans but their primary occupation while the men are making the plans is collecting water, doing washing. And collecting water ends up being incredibly important in that film. That's what you think, that we're lost? I'd say that seems about the right word for it. We're not lost, we're just finding our way. I don't blame him for not knowing. I blame him for saying he did. This is only a bad dream soon. It's going to be a story to tell. It's a quick one. He knows where the water is. Well, I've seen him strip the flesh clean off a man while he's still breathing. Well, maybe you like the wager. Water or blood. I leave the wagering to men like you. 
she brings attention to the fact that actually these menial tasks are incredibly important in a way that we don't traditionally prioritize them in storytelling and mythologizing. And I think visually as well, obviously we see so much detail and so much time is spent on little things that perhaps another filmmaker wouldn't rest upon. Mia, watching it on the big screen, did you pick up anything on second viewing that really struck you? I just think she just gives you so much time because it's not there's not this kind of big driving narrative. It's really your kind of the boxy four by three frame as well. Is really your focus is really kind of tight and you don't have much music. You know, you feel very much in the world. It feels like you're really there. And it really made me think about kind of the idea that whiteness had to be invented and the range of characters are very diverse. And, you know, it really made me think about, yeah, that whiteness had to be invented in order as a unifying idea to kind of accumulate power, you know, and I had the time to think about that, like literally from the bar scene when you kind of go around the room and and that, I just love that she gives you time to think about, she's not leading you to it, but she's giving you time to think your own thoughts about about this kind of really quite major moment in, in American history and the or rather the kind of, all the settler myths, basically. And she's giving you so much visual splendour to enjoy while you think. And also the characters have their little quiet moments, and I love it when Cookie is milking the cow and has a little chat with her. You know, this is our lead female character here. The film is even named after her. Orla, do you want to speak a little bit about that from a gender perspective? Yeah, I don't know. It's interesting that those conversations between Cookie and the cow are so tender. I think they bring out something really lovely about his character. The cow is really interesting because the cow wasn't actually in the book that the film is based on. The cow is a creation for the film and Reichart and John Raymond talk about how the cow was like the key in the lock that made the script work. The book, it takes place over like centuries and it takes place on various continents in order to explore this idea of like global trade. And they needed to bring that down to the intimate scale of a Reichart film with a small budget. And the way that they did that was by bringing in this cow to represent global trade without the characters ever having to go anywhere. So the cow itself represents so many different things in the narrative. It is at once this metaphor for trade and it's also this point of connection for Cookie and this bringer of nourishment. And I'm now very hungry having watched that. I need, I need some of those biscuits. But yeah, I mean, I love that, that as you say, like the, the tenderness of those conversations and they're really, really sweet. And I think that takes you to the heart of this very apologetic central figure who kind of doesn't want to do any harm or doesn't want to um, hurt anyone, but out of desperation and need is is borrowing milk from this cow. Uh, Mia, tell me, is there anything else that struck you again that you wanted to talk about? Yeah, it made me think about also how food is so kind of is in, integral to our kind of early memories as well. Like Toby Jones says, I taste London. He's really kind of visibly moved when he first eats one of those donuts. And another man says it evokes his, his mother. And there was something I liked a lot about that, that she is, again, paying attention to these the small moments that are really kind of relatable to all of us. You have a cow. First cow in the territory. Same place for cows. No, it's no place for white men either. I sense opportunity here. Good Lord, give me another. I'll give you six ingots for that last one. 
I taste London in this game. We have to take what we can when the taking is good. It seems dangerous. So is anything worth doing? I mean, it also made me think about um, how much we extract from animals, actually, and like what the point that the film's kind of overtly, covertly making around around that and trade and capital versus exchange. Yeah, absolutely. Although if anyone's coming to Reichardt's work cold, what would you suggest they start with? Is there a right order to watch her films? Hmm, that's a good question. And actually, I, I've introduced some people to Reichardt's work. It's difficult because I feel like she is a filmmaker who, like, for the majority of the films, I've not felt like I've truly understood the full extent of them until I'd seen them at least twice because they are that rich. They have this, you have this ability to enjoy them on some level in the first viewing, but there is so much to unpack that they don't fully reveal yourself into this until the second viewing. I feel like the two films that were the easiest to sort of grasp the first time around that would be good entry points uh either wendy and lucy is the film i've had the most success introducing people to write that with great dog what's her name uh, lucy you're a sweetheart lucy where are you going going to alaska king salmon you going to work $50. You can pay your fine now, or you can come back for a trial with the judge. I don't, I don't, I don't live here. I'm, I'm just passing through. If you get stopped in another state, you're just going to end up right back here. No address? No phone either? No, not right now. You can't get an address without an address. You can't get a job without a job. And also Old Joy, which is one of her simplest films, but very beautiful in its simplicity. It's just a road trip between two men, and it's incredibly awkward at times, funny at times, and very tender. So one of those two films, I feel like, my favorite one is Certain Women, but I feel like that isn't a film like First Cow that I f like fully fell for until I'd had time to digest it and I'd had time to, to revisit it. Mia, have you got any favourites that haven't been mentioned yet? Um, I've never seen her first one, actually, and I would agree with Orla, actually. Certain Women is, I'd, I'd say, the most difficult. I, I kind of like difficult cinema. I think she's difficult, her work's difficult in that she doesn't make it easy. And if you come in expecting this kind of usual kind of classic cinematic language, people can find that very, very difficult and, and a real kind of barrier to entry. But I kind of love that she does that. There's something about the depth that she's exploring in certain women that really strikes me, but it's a it's a difficult film to watch, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think that one is. This, this one's probably more accessible, and certainly just watching it in the cinema, there was a lot of, there was gentle laughter, wasn't there? And that's another thing I love being back in the cinema is hearing other people laugh and other people react, so yeah. I think she's a very, she's a very funny filmmaker in a way that she's not given credit for, especially because I feel like the funniness of her films really revealed themselves with rewatches. But she, she is funny. I think First Cow is accessible because her films can be a bit, they're gentle, but they're also a bit bleak in their worldview in that like her films often do deal with capitalism and disenfranchisement and they're not optimistic about those things. And that's still the case with First Cow. But also a lot of her films are about misconnections and people finding an inability to connect, which I think is why... So many people have loved First Cow and really fallen for it is because it's one of the few of her films that is actually about a genuine connection between people rather than between people and animals, which are the 
pretty much the only genuine true connections that you see in a lot of her previous films and I think that's the key to why this one in particular has has hit so many people. I think also it's that I love that it starts in the modern day because what it also makes you think about like it's such majestic filmmaking that that you then cut to the river and then you see that this the old steamer and then you know it's kind of seamless this move between present day and and the past and it makes you think that it really made me think about the kind of ghosts of the past are everywhere you know the bodies are everywhere definitely and that's really perhaps that's such a powerful thing to situate in the viewer at the beginning I, I love that her work is difficult I mean in a complimentary yeah way. challenging yeah yeah, yeah. um and thought-provoking and yeah absolutely and seeing it the second time I was really struck by that ghostly aspect that you mentioned as well actually that was much more kind of prevalent in my mind because once you've seen it first time you have the time to contemplate all that and gosh I think I nearly cried at the beginning and I definitely cried at the end yeah so I think it's a Suffice to say, we all recommend First Cow. <laughs> I think I think the listeners have got the gist of that. Now, I want to talk to Mia briefly about um, the National Lottery Weekend coming up, which means that lots of people can see stuff on the big screen pretty much for free. Can you explain? Yeah, so you basically, you just need to bring in a, a lottery ticket and then you get a free cinema ticket, basically. So it's kind of win-win. So that's sort of why we wanted to kind of spotlight the films that are from made by from the female perspective for that weekend to make sure that they're the ones that everyone picks with their, their lottery ticket. So should we talk about what those films yes, are? go for it. So Gunda is just, it's actually, there's a kind of interesting relationship between Gunda, which is about is. a pig, and First Cow. That's an amazing, I just love that film massively. Oh. It's, it's adorable and again very moving at the end but the, the visuals of, of the mother and the sow and the piglets I could just watch that for hours it's beautifully done isn't it quite hard to describe you realize how little kind of non-human voices are centered in cinema we're used to kind of natural history kind of yeah. David Attenborough style style kind of television making about the natural world but we're not really used to there's no human voices in Gunda and that god it's a relief actually it's a strangely relaxing experience, but also kind of bewitching. Yeah, so Gunda is definitely worth your money. Then the other one that we're um, that's going to be in the Reclaim the Frame spotlight is Jumbo coming up, which is um, starring Naomi Melon, the one of the stars of Portrait of a Lady on Fire, so by Zoe Whittock. And then Lady Boss, the Jackie Collins story, is something we just saw and loved. You haven't seen it yet, Anna. I'm so excited to see this. It's really good. I really had dismissed Jackie Collins as being someone that I really wasn't interested in. But actually, what all good biographies do is show something that in a different light. And actually, she was really quite groundbreaking. And, and it's a really thought-provoking watch, actually. Do you remember the French and Saunders sketch that they did about her and her sister? Um, this might mean something to some listeners, but they did, they did these sketches where Dawn and Jennifer dress up in leopard print and lounge around with cocktails and they go, we are lucky bitches. Check it out on YouTube, guys. If you haven't seen it, it's hilarious. But also, I'm sure Lady Boss is much more profound. But it just reminded me of that. What else have you got? And then there's a really great film. Called, actually, it's not going to be out for this weekend, but it will be out in early July called Tova, about Tove, Tove Janssen. Love that film. Fabulous film. Fascinating film about the Moomin's creator of the cartoons. And I had no idea that she was a very sort of free-loving, open-minded, progressive woman. And these these were kind of 
almost born out of her lesbian relationship. Would that be fair to say? Yes. Yeah, and it's such a thought-provoking, again, another really fascinating kind of literary character who, you know, you it opens a door into a life that sheds a whole new light on the work. And I, I just love stuff like that. Yes, me too. And Shiver Baby is one I saw recently that I really enjoyed. Very, very sharp, funny Jewish comedy with a great female character at the centre. So, yeah, I enjoyed that one. Keep an eye out for that one. Orla, is there anything that you've seen lately that you can recommend? Well, actually, last night, because we're working on the next Seventh Row ebook about creative nonfiction, which has been a really fascinating experience. And last night I caught up with a film that's featured in our book that my colleague Alex has been telling me to watch for months since late last year called John Ware Reclaimed, which is a Canadian film directed by Cheryl Fogo. And I believe it is available on VOD like pretty internationally and including in the UK. It is part of this section in the book that's about like how documentaries can reclaim history or rewrite history. And Cheryl is a woman, a writer, and like she's an artist in many forms, including playwriting and novel writing and now filmmaking. And she has throughout her career been kind of obsessed by this figure of John Ware, who was a black cowboy on the Alberta prairies in Canada. You know, black Canadian history is something that's pretty erased or told incorrectly, which is something she uses the figure of John Ware to engage in with. And she includes herself in the film, talks about how she experienced racism growing up in Alberta and how important the figure of John Ware is to her, how writing about him has told his story incorrectly. And she chronicles her research process to find out more about him and his family and his wife and his daughters. And yeah, I think it is a really fascinating testament to how film has the ability to to change the way that we think about history. So I really highly, highly recommend that one. Excellent. Tell us the name again. It's called John Ware Reclaimed. Excellent. And talking of reclaiming, Mia, can you tell the listeners more about Reclaim the Frame and how to find out about it? So Reclaim the Frame is basically a mission to bring ever greater audiences to films by women. And we mean directed by women, written by women, based on a book or a story by a woman, not about women necessarily. And you can go to the Bird's Eye View website and you can join and basically it takes you a couple of minutes, it's free and you get codes or free cinema tickets if we operate in your city. We operate in 15 cities around the UK and your job is basically to kind of join the kind of mission to bring more more viewers to that film. So we ask you to promote, literally it can be calling someone, it can be old school telecommunications it doesn't all have to be social media you just basically is about generating word of mouth so yeah go to birdseyeview.co.uk and you can sign up excellent orla how can people find out more about your work well i i am the executive editor of seventh row which is an online film site and publishing house uh, we publish film criticism, we do podcasts and Seventh Row podcast. We write books and one of our books is Roads to Nowhere, Kelly Reichardt's Broken American Dreams, which you can find at reichardtbook.com. 
which is our book all about Kelly Reichardt's films that we published last year. It has a case study on First Cow. It has a case study on certain women. It has essays on all her films. It has interviews with her and all of her collaborators from costume designers to actors. It's a really comprehensive, very ambitious study of Reichardt's work. And I'm super proud of it. And yeah, and upcoming, we have a book on creative nonfiction and a workshop surrounding that, which you can find at lockdownfilmschool.com slash nonfiction. So there's a lot going on. And yeah, basically all my work is on 7th Row and that's 7th-row.com or at 7th Row on social media. Amazing. And finally, Mia, we're going to have a quick chat with Crystal next. Tell us a little bit about her and what she's been doing with you. Yes, so we commissioned our first visual essay about the work of Chloe Zhao and we just thought it would be great to do one for Kelly Reichardt. So we put out a, a call on our channels for ideas and Crystal Onikoi answered um, or was the person who answered who we chose because her pitch was to explore the whiteness in the cinema of Reichardt and we just thought that was a really fascinating exploration because it's something that's kind of less explored and written about and her thesis is really fascinating which is why I kind of mentioned it it was something I was looking out for in the film actually and you know it's just so interesting to have perspectives that are kind of fresh and that frame things in an, in a different way and so I'm really excited that you're going to be speaking to her because I think she's rather special, actually, Crystal. Well, that's coming up next. Meantime, Mia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Anna. And Orla, thank you so much for joining Girls on Film. Thank you. Now, here's critic Christelle Olukoy, who's joining me on Zoom from Lagos, Nigeria. Well, I really appreciate you spending the time chatting to us. We've just been in the room with Mia Bayes talking to her about your fantastic video essay about Kelly. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Um, now, tell me, when did you first discover the work of Kelly Reichardt? So, I discovered it a few years ago. The first one I saw was uh, Night Moves. So I, I turned more on the environmentalist lens. Um, that was my first approach to her work. And then I started looking at the, at the other kind of work she's done more recently, like the past few years. 2048, the oceans are gonna be empty. How deep is this anyway? 200 feet. God knows that dam wants to come down. We all should know what we're dealing with oh, here. Can you please shut up? When we split up, we shouldn't talk. Yeah, no contact. No, no contact. contact. People are talking. Who's talking? Well, you don't think she would do anything stupid? I don't know. That's why I'm calling you. Can you explain more about the concept of your video essay that you've done with Bird's Eye View? Yes. So the video essay is basically articulated around two themes that... I think are like major in Reichardt's work. Um, the first one is that question of slowness. And it was important to me to contextualize slowness, not just as something, as this kind of meditative experience, but as also something that the protagonists themselves and not just the viewer are like kind of forced into. This sense of like constant deferral and delayed or even like impossible achievements, not just delayed, was interesting to me. And then the second aspect that I wanted to emphasize was that question of whiteness and white pessimism in particular, because um, the protagonists are mostly primarily white uh, characters. And it was just striking to me to see that that simple fact wasn't necessarily 
coming across that much in the reception of um, her filmography. They are not just white, they are also a certain kind of socioeconomic location that has been affected by neoliberalism. But she's also grappling with questions of settler colonialism in two of her major films. And even if, like, there is this question of, like, indigenous characters uh, that also reoccur in her filmography, uh, in the first film, uh, River of Grass, you also have a number of black characters who appear in very interesting ways. But all of that is all articulated around um, that notion I was trying to flesh out in that essay of white pessimism, of basically what happens when dominant narratives and dominant temporal arrangements of success, of entitlements, who are organized around race and racial order, have been contested, are still being contested, and the fragility of those narratives is being exposed more and more. And what, like, what can people do when grappling with that kind of world, basically? And what's interesting to me in Reichardt's work is precisely that she's not making that just a product of now, like, of like neoliberalism in the past, let's say, 30, 40 years, but she's looking at that even at the time of settler colonialism, those contradictions, those temporal delays. Well, I think that's a fantastic teaser for people to go and find out more and watch your video essay. Now, they can find that through Bird's Eye View and Recreating the Flame, can't you? If you, if you just Google that, though. And we'll also put a link in the show notes. Christelle, thank you so much for joining Girls on Film. Thank you for inviting me. That's it for today's Girls on Film. Thanks for joining me, Anna Smith along with Mia Bays, Orla Smith and Christelle Olukoy. Kelly Reichardt's film First Cow stars John Magaro, Orion Lee and Toby Jones. It's distributed by Mubi and it's currently showing in UK cinemas for those who feel safe and able to go. If you're interested in finding out more about National Lottery Cinema Weekend in partnership with the BFI, it's taking place on Saturday the 19th and Sunday the 20th of June at more than 500 cinemas across the UK. Cinema Weekend will make over 200,000 free tickets available to watch any film screening across the weekend. As a thank you to National Lottery players for their vital contribution to film. Girls on Film is an HLA production, brought to you by executive producer Hedda Archbold, audio producer Emma Butt, assistant producers Heather Dempsey and Eliana J, and our partners for this episode, Bird's Eye View. We'll be back soon. Meantime, we post every day on social media, so do find us there for more female-focused film chat. Stay safe. Because it's hot, it's steamy, and it's coming to your screen soon. Yes, it's my new blockbuster, Lucky Bitches. <laughs>